1: On W-A-B-E in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Throughout his life as a dancer and choreographer, Alvin Ailey created an art form searching for truth through movement. His Extraordinary Life is the subject of a documentary which will air on our PBS station, ATL PBA, tomorrow at 9 p.m. Later this hour, we'll hear from the filmmaker, Jamila Wignot, and Robert Battle, the artistic director of Alvin Ailey American Dance Theater. First, the hand game Rock, Paper, Scissors has been around since 200 B.C., You may have played it first as a child to decide who would get the last cookie or be the seeker in a game of hide-and-go-seek. The game is used as a way to decide minor conflicts, and now a new installation in Midtown plays on that very concept with a 12-foot-tall sculpture called conversation piece. That's P-E-A-C-E by the artist Kevin Box. Adjacent to the rock, paper, scissors sculpture is an outdoor art gallery presented by the Midtown Alliance. Kevin Box joins us now via Zoom with Ginny Kennedy, the director of urban design at the Midtown Alliance. Welcome to City Light. Thanks. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Kevin, the name of the installation is Conversation Peace, spelled P-E-A-C-E. What is the significance of this play on words?
2: Well, I'm a, I'm a sculptor who works in three dimensions and a conversation piece is a term often used for a work of art in a home or a public uh, setting, or even in a museum. And I've been inspired by art my whole life. And the idea of creating a sculpture called rock, paper, scissors was something that I had worked with for a number of years. But I wanted to evolve the work a little bit beyond the obvious of a rock and a piece of paper and a pair of scissors. So conversation piece emerged very naturally, to be honest, from a conflict that I had and and the conversation or the lack thereof that was happening in a resolve between a friendship that I had.
1: Mm. Would you describe the
2: appearance of
1: conversation piece and tell us how you created it?
2: Well, it, it has three obvious elements that represent or reference the rock paper scissors theme. There's a boulder or a rock. In this case, it's about four feet tall and weighs 3,000 pounds. There's a large pair of classical sort of traditional looking scissors that maybe your mom or your teacher had in the desk. These big metal blades with red, bright red handles. And then on top of them all is a paper origami crane, which obviously represents paper, but also takes on the meaning and the archetypal symbol of peace that has been around for thousands of years in the form of a, of a dove or a white bird all of them are cast in stainless steel except for the rock itself
1: and paper wins the battle here by folding itself <laughs> into an origami crane you you certainly want peace to come out on top of this game the fact that the paper folds itself into an origami crane were you suggesting a connection between the game of rock, paper, scissors, and an Asian country.
2: That was not in my intention or in my mind. And, you know, you referenced the fact that the paper folded itself, and that's romantic, but we are in charge of our decisions and our choices. And I think that in the conversation that this piece brings up, that is the implication that we we really can make a difference in the outcome of conflict through our choices. And a piece of paper transforms into an origami crane or a symbol of peace through our decisions. And for me, that's the magic of origami in that we can transform nothing into something or into anything that we choose. In this case, that conversation leads us to this idea of transformation into peace and wanting peace. And what does that mean? And what do we have to do? What role do we play in that dialogue?
1: Would you feel comfortable telling us about the conflict with your friend that underlies this?
2: It's not necessarily that conflict. It's a it's a broader theme of conflict. I think we can all relate to having a disagreement with someone who we love or are friends with, or, or maybe not. Maybe it's not even somebody that close to us. But the idea of having a a disagreement and one person in the party choosing silence versus furthering the conversation versus wanting to better understand where the conflict arises from. And when people choose silence, when they stop engaging in the conversation or stop having an involvement and a want to understand what's wrong in the situation, it's very difficult. And from my understanding, what I have experienced fantasy comes in when we have all had this conversation or a conflict or an argument with someone in our head right and they do something say something some way and we have these great responses in the moment it never comes out that way and i think we can all relate to that to me what i realized in that encounter was that fantasy can come in and take the part of reality And in this situation and in others I've experienced, to be honest, when people don't have meaningful dialogue, they begin to fantasize and our minds fill in all these blanks and words that never came from the other party. And that's dangerous, I think, in personal relationships and politics and in life and in our in our world that we live in, we can all see where the lack of clear dialogue means that we're filling in the blanks with assumption and we all I've heard that term of you know what happens when people assume it makes something out of you and me, right? So
1: there's a certain irony with this conversation piece suggesting that we need to engage more.
2: Yeah, it's an adult version of rock paper scissors. That's kind of how I've, always, <laughs> I've always referenced this piece to me as a mature version of rock paper scissors because conflict can be resolved with this light-hearted children's game. But for deeper situations, like we really need to have dialogue and conversation is the key that becomes the key to uh, resolution and resolve.
1: Jenny, what is the connection between the sculpture and an upcoming exhibition at the Atlanta Botanical Garden?
3: Well, we were so excited to learn about Kevin's work through our board member, Mary Pat Matheson from The Garden. She has been an amazing resource to Midtown Alliance by making us aware of artists that should be on our radar. And she did that with us with Kevin's work. Kevin is going to have an exhibit in The Garden beginning in May of next year that showcases even more of his beautifully origami-inspired sculptures throughout the setting of the Botanical Garden. So we were really tickled to have an opportunity to give the public in Midtown and in Atlanta a sneak peek of this amazing coming attraction that we'll be able to enjoy in the summer and fall of next year. And this piece is so perfect for us because as you may remember, Lois, we've had other pieces on this corner that have certainly sparked a lot of conversation. And so
1: oh yes,
3: it felt really um, fun to us to, to even play off that even more. We started with the rock spinner, and then we had the auto eater, and now we have conversation piece. And I think that it feels both fun and kind of poetic, honestly, to really hone in on the fact that this corner in Midtown has really um, become kind of a a showcase for art that gets people talking. So we're super excited and and equally excited to see Kevin's installation next summer.
1: If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wright's speaking with Ginny Kennedy, the Director of Urban Design at the Midtown Alliance and artist Kevin Box, about Box's new sculpture, Conversation Piece, installed in Midtown at the corner of Peachtree and Tent. Kevin, can you give us a very brief glimpse or summary into the Technical process. I mean, we think of artist studios and sculptor studio, but we are talking about something enormous here. Where do you create a 12 foot sculpture?
2: Oh my gosh, you have opened Pandora's box. My simple answer, and I I obviously get questions like this a lot, is it's a very simple 35-step, 12-week process (laughs) on a good day. If everything goes right and everybody's getting along. You know, sculpture is a team sport, and it's what attracted me to it initially, besides the fact that it has such a durability to it, that these things, these objects can last for thousands of years. And there's thousands of years of history, especially with cast bronze or the lost wax casting technique. But it it also isn't made all by myself in a studio alone. And I think that's something that really brought me into uh, embracing sculpture. Uh, I started out working when I graduated college in New York. I started out in Atlanta uh, at a foundry called The Crucible down in Union City. I had met the owner of the foundry through a student project that we had done. And I wanted to learn more about it. So I, start, I went down there and apprenticed for a summer and got to work with great people and an interesting team and meet artists that were, you know, working in this field. But it is an incredibly intense, labor intensive, very expensive process. And at the time I was working with bronze, eventually I discovered cast stainless steel, which is a, a much more structurally strong metal also can be shiny and sort of silver have this beautiful silver color to it but my work lends itself to that in order to balance these delicate objects in the air as i have in this sculpture stainless steel is really almost necessary and in a way so i have a studio out here in santa fe new mexico that i enjoy with a number of staff my wife and i have worked together for over 12 years i've got assistants in the studio that are both like an assistant and that are far superior in their skill levels so we've got a team a really creative team that we work together with and then we have clients like Midtown Alliance we have private collectors um, uh, gardens such as Atlanta that host exhibitions and it's a big it's a big uh, entourage of creativity I like to refer to as the economy of peace because we are all making a living uh, in the creative field, working together towards peaceful means and uh, engaging in dialogue with communities and collectors uh, around the world. It's a pleasure. You're living the dream. I am. It's, without without any taking it for granted at all, it's it's not a joke. And we take it one day at a time with a great deal of gratitude.
1: I love your description of sculpture as a team sport yeah i'm going to think of that from now on i'm curious about your technique if you could tell us a bit more about combining paper with bronze yeah because this brings together two of your loves
2: yeah my background was in graphic design Uh, another start in atlanta my uncle had a graphic design firm when i was growing up downtown And I think at like 14, he invited me to come to work with him one summer uh, that I was staying there with my family and I never turned back. I started out in printmaking, you know, graphic design paper. There was always paper in my in my life. And as a kid, I worked with paper. My mom bought me a paper making kit, you know. But as I grew up and went to college and I I studied at the School of Visual Arts in Savannah, Georgia and New York City under a graphic design scholarship, they required art history as a a class. And it really transformed my perception of art and what that was. And the fact that there's been this conversation for thousands and thousands of years, up to 30 to 40,000 years, art has been the great conversation piece of history whether you're you know what language or race or color or sex you are art speaks to all so long as you can see it i guess uh, it's probably has its limitations just like anything when i studied art history i realized this conversation and i decided i didn't want to be involved in graphic design and marketing because it was for the most part no disrespect but creating landfill trash but i said look i'll use my graphic design to promote myself and help be a more successful fine artist and I can always go back and into into graphic design so they allowed that transition and I went into bronze casting and you know bronze casting is this very intense you know drawn out process and so I had to learn all those different steps and in that apprenticeship I learned what was the limitation, what could be done and what couldn't be done. And I also saw what artists were doing and where they were pushing the envelope. And I used that as my opportunity to pioneer a technique specifically for paper. And so I moved to Austin, Texas, where there were a bunch of foundries. And I found a master uh, and his wife, Michael and Rosemary Hall truly taught me what I, what I know and how to push the boundaries of casting and so i i married paper and bronze and uh uh, successfully developed this technique
1: fantastic Ginny. as part of the midtown alliances artist in residence program six artists were chosen to receive studio workspace in midtown as part of the heart of the arts initiative That's phase two, phase one launched last year. How has that been going since May?
3: It's really been an incredible opportunity for us to bring new talent to Midtown and share these amazing creatives with the Midtown community. So Kevin said something a moment ago that I loved, which was art speaks to all as long as you can see it. And I think the Midtown Alliance has been very focused on making art part of daily life in Midtown, so we want people to be able to see art from um, the moment that they enter our district, whether that's a three-dimensional sculpture like Kevin's conversation piece, or bright, bold, super graphics that we install on storefront windows, and that's something that we um, that we did at the same time that we um, installed Kevin's piece. We worked with Dewberry Group to install unique works by six of our resident artists on the huge windows that face Peachtree Street, just down the street from the corner of Peachtree and 10th. So we really feel like Heart of the Arts is an opportunity not only to spur the local arts economy and put artists that are productively doing creative work in our district, but also to expose Midtown to talent that they wouldn't otherwise know.
1: Finally, can you just tell us a bit about the Outdoor Art Gallery and some of the works in it?
3: Sure. So the Outdoor Art Gallery was a concept that we came up with as we were working with Kevin and his team on the corner sculpture. We thought, you know, how can we pack as much art into this block as possible? So we had a couple of interesting opportunities. We we partnered with Atlanta Celebrates Photography on an interactive mural that has an augmented reality component right there on the corner, just a a little bit away from the sculpture that Kevin installed. That's a, a really cool mural that combines both mural work with photography It features 20 Georgia photographers in the context of the mural. And if you hover your mobile device over the mural, the wings of this phoenix that's depicted come to life and you can learn more about each of these 20 artists that made a contribution to the mural. So that's something not to miss um, at the corner of Peachtree and 10th Street. And then we also swapped out all of our street banners that we have up and down Peachtree Street in Midtown to feature unique art by not only our six artists in residence, but the storefront artists that we worked with last winter on installations up and down Peachtree Street, each of those artists provided us with a graphic that we um, captured on our banner. So as you stroll end to end uh, on Peachtree Street, pay particular attention to the block between 11th and 8th, because in those three blocks, you'll see just uh, a range of, of artwork that features all of the artists that we've worked with over the last 18 months.
1: Ginny Kennedy, director of urban design at Midtown Alliance, and artist Kevin Box, conversation piece can be found at the corner of Peachtree and 10th Street in Midtown. You can also see the Midtown Alliance's outdoor art gallery along 10th Street Park. More information will be on our website WABE.org slash City Lights. In a moment, we'll listen back to my interview with the filmmaker of the documentary Ailey, airing tomorrow on our PBS station, ATLPBA. You're tuned to WABE Atlanta. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wrights. It's great to have you along. Throughout his life as a dancer and choreographer, Alvin Ailey created an art form by searching for truth through movement. His extraordinary life is the subject of a documentary which will air on our PBS station. ATL PBA, tomorrow at 9 p.m. Filmmaker Jamila Wignot joined me via Zoom in August with the Artistic Director of Alvin Ailey American Dance Theatre, Robert Battle. Wignot began with explaining how the film came about.
4: It came about in 2017 when Insignia Films, the producing partner on the film, the principals of that company, Stephen Ives and Amanda Pollock, approached me, and you know we knew each other from our various work on PBS strands. And they said, you know, we're looking for a director to helm a project about Alvin Ailey, and you know, what do you think about that? <laughs> and uh, I, you know, my jaw dropped because I have been a fan of the company since I first saw them perform in college, and I just couldn't believe that. You know, it felt like this film was finding me, and I said yes right from jump, and and we set off to get the film made. The
1: movie alternates in time very well. Would you explain how the film juxtaposes the past with the present?
4: Yeah, absolutely. So when we approached uh, Robert Battle and the company with the idea of making a biography, we knew from the beginning that we always wanted the film to include a contemporary piece, uh, some way of showing the company today, because we felt like there, no sort of portrait of Mr. Ailey and his work and his vision would be complete without um, seeing that the company indeed lived on um, beyond his passing. And so uh, Robert said, you know, it's so serendipitous that you're coming to us now because we've just commissioned a new work by street choreographer Rennie Harris, an hour-long ballet that would, you know, depict Mr. Ailey's life and times. Ha, ha,
2: ha. Ha. So-
0: we're gonna start with making up vocabulary. If I can get the movement out, I can
2: create the story.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
4: So we set off um, filming the rehearsal process uh, for that ballet, and it was really a process of thinking about where the visual language of Rennie Harris's dance work was. Um, exploring or showcasing kind of a thematic connection to to what we were discovering in our process of sifting through the archive um, of Mr. Ailey's life and, and his own dances as well. So it was really something that really got worked out in the edit room where we wanted to think about what were the moments that it made sense to kind of come in full on, on this rehearsal process where Rennie is really on a journey to you know understand... Mr. Ailey. And in our film, we are really kind of with Mr. Ailey himself as he's on a journey to understand himself as he's on a journey that's drawing him closer to dance uh, and then building a company and going from there.
1: Yeah. A very powerful statement in the film comes when Alvin Ailey says, I see the dancer as a physical historian Information is stored in their bodies. Robert, you've spoken with me before about the blood memory in this company. How does memory anchor this documentary?
0: I think that artistically, even things that we don't think we remember, we do. It lives with us. It resides somewhere in our being. It's just that Alvin Ailey, he had the ability to see what is there as opposed to what isn't there. In a way, as he painted his canvas with his dances, I think he was telling his story, but telling the story of a people that it's once personal, but also it reflects humanity in such a beautiful way. And in a way, when I think about Revelations, um, I think about the power of the spiritual and how that helps us to remember things we may think that we've never experienced. When I hear Wade in the Water, I think of my mother, my grandmother, my great, great grand, my, you know, through infinity. And there's something about that memory that is so electric in Alvin Ailey's creativity throughout this film. And also, I think the notion that both Jamila and Rennie Harris were discovering Alvin through this process. And that's what I feel by the end of it and throughout it is discovering the person, right. And not the myth or not the person on a pedestal and learning how that drove his creativity and why it's so palpable still to this
1: day. Indeed. In fact, What most of us know about Alvin Ailey is through his work and the company. Jamila, how did you decide which parts of his life story to include?
4: We were really guided by these audio recordings that um, were made in the last year of Mr. Ailey's life. He was in the process of working on an autobiography, and so he was kind of engaged in this exercise of memory himself, thinking about what parts of his life story um, did he think were most salient, most necessary for people to have uh, in order to understand him and and what was shaping him. And so in terms of the more intimate details of his life that he shared, those were culled from, from those Those recordings. And I think there was a quality to those recordings because it wasn't him as Mr. Alvin Ailey, the artistic director of the company, you know, sort of on a press tour or, you know, trying to sort of talk very kind of broadly about his vision. He, it just had a different kind of quieter, sort of more relaxed um, tone to it. Uh, And that really informed, I think, both our aesthetic approach in in the film and just really sort of digging deep into those, to those memories. So, you know, he shares his sexual awakening, he shares his, a story of, you know, personal heartbreak, he shares his struggles with mental health. And I think all of that really guided us in thinking about, you know, parts of his story to share. And then also, you know, in talking to his collaborators and colleagues, kind of things we wanted to help them help us understand you know about about working with the man
1: it was interesting to discover that the dancers in all their reverence for him wanted him to remain on a pedestal that being too close would have shown how human he was but he didn't let people become close did he
4: yeah, it seems that it was very important for him to be able to kind of retain some part of himself or maintain some part of himself that would always be separate from even his closest collaborators. And that's a kind of intriguing thing, because I think when you watch the dance works and when you listen to those you know, who worked closely with him talk about him, there's such a sense of real kind of generosity, this kind of expansive embrace, this caring for others. He's that kind of person who seemed sort of abundantly capable of shining a spotlight on um, people around him but maybe not as capable of allowing that spotlight to shine as brightly on on him in a way. And in some ways, I think it's probably self-protective to some degree. Um, I think when you are asked to give that much of yourself, um, it makes sense that you would want some kind of quiet space separate unto yourself where that's not necessary. So it's, it's part of the duality that I think is intriguing you know, about him, and that remains a kind of, a bit of an enigma, you know, to this day.
1: Robert, you were talking about revelations, and there's an essential moment in the film when he explains the joy of songs he heard exploding in church and how those will always be with me. Jamila, you address the complexities of Ailey's masterpiece, Revelations, and raise the question, did success come too early? I mean, you even have Harry Belafonte asking Alvin Ailey, did he know when he created Revelations that it would last forever? Would you talk about that?
4: Yeah, that bit of interview is really interesting just because you see Mr. Ailey in that moment, you know, he's saying he's, he actually sees revelations performed in Atlanta and it still works and he kind of rolls (laughs) his eyes. Um, And, you know, I think, I think he's very aware of why it still works. I think he's excited that he, you know, made a dance work that is um, that kind of eternal I'd love to hear more from Robert on this as well as a dance maker himself because what I do think too is that that demand that that be the dance work that always you know gets performed I think is challenging for an artist as a choreographer you're interested in exploring new and different sides of yourself and of humanity and so I can appreciate how the sort of desire to see this one work over and over and over again might make you feel choreographically stuck. I don't know. I mean it's it's a it, it's kind of an amazing burden to have, right? <laughs> like you have a masterpiece that people cannot get over and at the same time, you know, maybe you want to make a work that that moves beyond that.
1: But he did create a whole body of work beyond it. Robert, what are your thoughts on the popularity of Revelations.
0: Revelations, it's you know, one of the wonders of the world in a way that I don't think you'll find many creatives who have that problem. <laughs> um, as wonderful as their work may be, as, as wonderful as there are many choreographers with brilliant and wonderful work, Revelations is <laughs> sort of space in and of itself. I do believe he struggled with with that in terms of perhaps wanting to end the program with something different, or, you know, there's a wonderful story in the, that Chaya, Masazumi Chaya talked to me about when when Alvin Ailey was in the hospital and wanted revelations taken out from this and that and the other, and and Chaya just kind of showed him in, in real life, these are the ticket sales, Without Revelation, these are the ones with you, see? (laughs) (laughs) So so he was a realist in that way. But I think there is that thing that followed him. But still, uh, he did amazing works and masterpieces beyond Revelations. But Revelations was, in some ways, that gateway into a creative space that some of us will never find ourselves in.
1: Indeed, and in fact, in the film, it's described as a reenactment of life itself. Joy, anger, and sorrow. Thinking about what Mr. Ailey said again, of the role of the dancer as historian, and that this history is in the body, with Revelations, I thought about Isabel Wilkerson's masterpiece, *The Warmth of Other Suns*, and the two seem comparable to me. Ha- has anyone ever asked you about that?
4: No, that connection hasn't been directly John, until now. But I, I think it's interesting in so far as thinking about kind of generational memory. And the kind of epicness of what she traces um, in that work, which I think is is similar to what you experience with Revelations. There's just a kind of epic telling of a people's history that I think, you know, it feels as if it is the full kind of 500-year history of the African-American experience in this country.
0: The joy of these people, of my aunts and uncles exploding in church is something that was always with me. I remember there was this procession of people in white. They signed waiting in the water.
4: because some of the themes that it traces continue to be relevant today I mean both in terms of some of the deep sorrow uh, and despair that's captured in that piece that unfortunately continues to be relevant you know given the racial history of this country uh, at the same time I think it really gets at the essence of what defines black life which is not that despair and that sorrow it is the it is this kind of beauty, this um, sense of community, this sense of joy, this music, a rich and very deep tradition that defines and will continue to find Black life in this country. So I think that because it is so sort of true at a getting at a kind of essence, that's the other reason that audiences clamor to see it every season. There's just some kind of incredible truth that's specific, deeply specific to the Black experience, but I think also that is specific to human human beings and what it is that allows us to continue to survive. So I think all of that is, is built into the 30 minutes.
1: Filmmaker Jamila Wignot and artistic director Robert Battle speaking about their documentary, Ailey, which will air tomorrow on our PBS station, ATL PBA. We'll return with more of this conversation in just a moment. You're tuned to WABE Atlanta. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wrightses. Thank you for listening. Let's return to my conversation from last August. With Robert Battle, the artistic director of the Alvin Ailey American Dance Theater and filmmaker Jamila Wignot, Wignott's documentary about Ailey is airing tomorrow on our PBS station, ATL PBA. And here she speaks about some of the commentators appearing in the film.
4: We were really fortunate, I think, to um, be able to get interviews. I mean, incredibly privileged to be able to get interviews with all the folks that we did. And I think, you know, they appear in a specific kind of order because that order reflects the sort of, as I say, journey that Mr. Ailey himself took um, you know his artistic journey which was something that we were very much interested in we we thought of this very much as a story of becoming and and being with him so you know early in the film you only hear from Mr. Ali until we're with him in high school where he's beginning to discover dance and then enters you know then enters Carmen de Lavalade who there is there as a witness to his hesitancy around embracing this incredible dance that he was capable of. Even then she sees him in a, in a gymnastics class and she can see in his movement and his, in his body that, you know, this is something he should be pursuing. And of course he's already interested in it. And then we meet Don Martin, who's, you know, one of the earliest members of the Ailey company, but who also uh, attended high school with Mr. Alien, journeyed with him to Lester Horton's dance theater, where they, you know, kind of open, walk through these doors and enter kind of, you know, exciting new world. So it's sort of as Mr. Ailey is um, in the film telling, as he's kind of gathering his kindred spirits, really, who are going to be dancers and artists themselves. And sort of as he, in a way, it's kind of the gathering of the individuals who will ultimately be a kind of family for him. Uh, so everybody from, obviously, Carmen de to George Faison to Miss Judith Jameson, his muse, uh, Sylvia Waters, Linda Kent, Hope Clark, uh, Bill Hammond, uh, Bill Jones. I mean, uh, you know, a kind of breadth of individuals who really are there, as I say, as also kind of firsthand witnesses to Mr. Ailey's journey.
1: Robert, would you talk about identity as a strong message? In the film, we learn I am is a theme that runs through all the dances. You agree?
0: Yes, I think that that's the power of Alvin Ailey's work. You know, when I think of "I Am," one of the first things that come to mind is the Poor Man's March. I think that was one of the last things that Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was involved in. If I'm, I may be wrong on my history, but I believe so. And you know, (laughs) that famous photo of someone holding up a protest sign that says I am a man. I think of two, you know, my mother who recited poetry. uh, And one of the poems was by Mari Evans. And it's called I am a black woman. There is something about reclaiming and exclaiming one's identity when you're told that you're less than a man less than human. Um, And I believe that's what um, she was getting at in the film. It to me struck that particular note of pride, of blood memories, of knowing fully who you are as human being and being able to express that in all ways is a revolutionary act. And one that I remember learning very much as a child growing up in Liberty City, you know, I mean, when you you learn the words, Black is beautiful, you know, all of that to me is, is a reflection of what that film was all about and what his life was all about. You know, even Black Lives Matter, Alvin Ailey was a living embodiment of that before, you know, it was put together that way. And so all of that to me is about reclaiming and exclaiming one's identity, and the freedom in that, and the power in
1: that. Jamila, you do not shy away from the fact that Alvin Ailey died a horrible death from AIDS. He had asked Judith Jamison to take over, and I found it very emotional when Bill T. Jones described the guilty disease. And it's mentioned, what's done in the dark will come to the light.
4: Did Alvin Ailey have
1: no gay community?
4: You know, that's an interesting moment of a kind of generational gap, I think, between Bill T. Jones and between Mr. Ailey. I think Mr. Ailey had other gay people that were around him. Obviously, there were people in the company and there were people um, you know, in his private life. I think in that moment, Biltie Jones is really articulating the idea that maybe he doesn't have a political community around him that can advocate for him in that way. And I think it makes sense that Biltie Jones would see it that way, understanding that Bilty Jones is, of course, of a much younger generation um, that will be putting themselves more on the front lines of countering the incredible stigma, um, and I would say violence against the gay community in that moment in which no one is supporting them as they are being besieged by this, you know, terrible disease. You know, it's funny when I first sat down with Bill T. Jones. He asked me, "Oh, you know, when was Mister Ailey born?" I said, "He was born in 1931." He said, "Oh my gosh, he's he's the same age as my father," and I think that tells you quite a bit (laughs) about the different ways that they would, you know, that they would understand their sexualities, the different ways that they would internalize, you know, what the world's expectation of them was, and in the end, you know, what I think is in that moment. You know, it's so easy for us, from our current vantage point, to look back and judge that decision. And I think you see that Bill T. Jones is, in fact, not judging him for that. I think that it was a terrible kind of fork to find yourself at. There is the individual decision Mr. Ailey could have made, perhaps, to disclose his status. But you know, I think given that he's seen you know that he's a person who is so invested in this incredible institution that he built and the question of whether or not would the people continue to support and love it in the ways that they did if he did disclose and i think being you know forced to consider those choices that's just a terrible a terrible position to be in and an important reminder you know of where we were in that moment and also, you know, where we are now, where I think there is still uh, an incredible amount of stigma and shame around this disease. So for us, the the important part was to not edit it out of the film, um, to be truthful about it, but to also be able to see through somebody like Bill T. Jones a kind of understanding of what the tensions might have been for Mr. Aoe in that moment.
1: I don't think we can conclude without talking about The impact of Alvin Ailey's mother upon his life. What a gorgeous human being she was. Can you talk about that?
4: Yeah. Again, I mean, I think she's clearly a mother who was extraordinarily dedicated to her to her son and to providing him. you know, a certain kind of life that she wouldn't have access to. I think when Mr. when Mazazumi Chaya says, you know, she's somebody who sacrificed for him. I think that's something he was very aware of. I also personally find, you know, in that moment where we found that rare interview of her with Alvin Avali talking about the company um, and she's asked if she's, you know, proud of him and she says, oh, and, and seeing the dance works and she says, you know, oh, it's the biggest thrill of my life. And then there's this turn where she's like, and that's why he's got to keep on keeping on. I think you see in this one sort of brief moment, the kind of mother she is. She's extremely proud of her son, but she is also pushing him, right? Like it's from that moment on, he still has more work to do and he has to keep, you know, keep going she's extraordinary and obviously somebody of extraordinary significance to Mr. Ailey given Cry and his uh, creating a dance work for her Um, and then you know basically spending out the last of his days with her as well
1: Robert what impact has this film had upon the company?
0: Oh I think it has been tremendous for the company especially in these very difficult times talk about identity. I mean, so much of what we do, our identity is wrapped up in traveling, (laughs) you know, the dancers to be at the fabulous Fox. These are things we can depend on. That is a part of our identity, our creativity, our engagement with audiences. So this, in some ways, you know, mixed blessings offered us a moment to stop and reflect on a lot of things, but certainly On, you know, sort of, who are we? Where do we come from? And we've been talking a lot about invoking Mr. Ailey, bringing him into the room, hearing his voice. These are themes that have come up, especially since um, the 60th anniversary, in the way that Rennie Harris does in his work, where you hear his voice. And that had been a conversation, um, organizational conversation. And so this comes at a perfect time, when we as an organization can reflect on who Alvin Ailey was, that we can appreciate, you know, that we're sort of living in his wake, that we come into this wonderful Alvin Ailey Dance Center in New York City, one of the largest buildings dedicated to dance. I mean come on. And so understanding that it took a lot of sacrifice, Mr. Ailey, for us to be able to go on stages all over the world and tell our story. And I think that it is important for the entire organization to be reminded of that, to be reminded of the shoulders on which we stand, to not take for granted, you know, the notion that, yes, Now you see more um, that people can sort of speak out and say truly who they are, right? You have gay pride, you have lots of themes, although some of the stigma and discrimination still exists. But we have to think about those people who couldn't say that at that time, but who said it in their work, or who said it in other ways, right? So that we are able to say it just a little bit louder. And so I think it's just reminded us all in the way that this time has reminded us all not to take for granted when we sit in a theater all together and witness the beauty of the Albany american Dance Theater and revelations and what a privilege it is. And so I think for the organization who has had to be really creative and how we've had to continue to connect with our audiences through the digital world, It asked the whole entire organization to bring all of their creativity to bear. And so then when you see the film that is so brilliant, it reminds us that if he could do it, so can we.
1: Robert Battle, the artistic director of the Alvin Ailey American Dance Theater and filmmaker Jamila Wignot, her documentary, Ailey explores the life of dancer and choreographer Alvin Ailey and will air tomorrow at 9 p.m. on our PBS station, ATL-PBA. More information is available on our website, wabe.org slash City Lights. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., we'll hear from the creator of Candle House Collective, a theater company that performs interactive plays over the telephone for an audience of one. City Light's senior producer is Kim Troves, Summer Evans is our producer and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes, and we want you to connect with City Lights on social media. Share your feedback with us on Facebook at WABE City Lights or check out our pictures and videos on Instagram where we are at City Lights underscore Lois Reitzes. And, of course, I'd love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thank you for listening to WABE, Atlanta's Choice for NPR.